teaching text for today comes from Matthew 3, 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the darkness, prepare the way for the Lord, make locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do, not, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that, a voice from heaven. Of obedience. I truly believe that. I truly believe that 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 is a place where remarkable things happen in the world. But I also have grown up (laughs) my entire life hearing people say that type of thing. Um, You know, and and so one of the things that's happened hearing that my entire life is it's put me in a place a couple of, you know, more than a couple of times where I've asked, well, what's the limiting factor then in my life, in my story? Why, why aren't the remarkable things that I, I seem to be longing for, why am I not experiencing them in the way that I'm longing to experience them if this thing is true, that, that remarkable things happen in a place where God's pr- promises and plans and, and, and presence uh, intersect with someone who is, who is fully committed and surrendered in obedience. And so um, a couple of, uh, you know, explorations of the limiting factors in my own story have been, maybe I'm not, these are the questions I ask myself, maybe I'm not uh, surrendered and obedient enough. And that's not an unreasonable thing to consider. Quite a few times in my life, the answer to that limiting factor would be, yeah, sure, that, that, that qualifies. Um, another thing that will sometimes come up in my mind is, um, you know, maybe God's presence and plan is mostly to do with someone else. But they've come up in my head that, uh, that I've often entertained as one of the limiting factors for why I'm not experiencing the abundance or the fullness or the remarkable life that, that God seems to promise. So I want to say, at, at times in my life, I've needed help from God, from other believers, from, from, you know, from the Holy Spirit, from some, some kind of wake-up call to uh, 
transcend both of those limiting factors. Two, I've needed time. There were times where I need for God to do all of it, you know, and, and me do nothing. I need to commit. I need to surrender. There was something I wasn't doing that I needed to be about, or, or there was something I was doing that I needed to let go of and surrender and stop. And what helped in that limiting factor was I had to remember the life God is calling me to, he's calling me to from love, not, you know, some arbitrary limitation. The second, around the second limiting factor that God's plan was primarily about someone else and and didn't necessarily have a place for me was I had to be reminded of the Father's love. And, And that's one of the powerful things that happens when we come together as a church is we remind one another of the love of the Father. We remind one another that we have a place in the story. We remind one another of our true identity, that he does have love and promises and plans for my life, for our community and the fear and insecurity accusation of the enemy are not the truest things about me. Those two limiting factors have been prevalent in my life at different times. Maybe you can relate to them. Maybe you're like, move on, please. So I will. The third limiting fact thing that I really believe, there's an incredible place, I'll say it again, what I said at the beginning, there's an incredible place of grace and power in the world where some of the most remarkable, satirically or maybe blatantly, he's fulfilling this version of our culture's narrative of what the good life is. And for as much as we might like, the right thing to do is to put some distance between ourselves and that, especially in church, the reality is many of us, if like, if a version of that was presented to us, we say, yeah, I'll take that. That sounds fantastic. I bet I can handle it. I know it's not gonna satisfy my soul, but I'd like to have a shot. Doseke's ad campaign went on for nine years. It was so successful that when they tried to replace him with another most interesting man, he absolutely failed. For nine years, we had been saying, this is the most interesting man in the world. You try to switch it to another guy. I don't think so. Doseke's sales plummeted. They, they abandoned the campaign. It is awkward to make the handoff, as we actually will see in this story. I bring that up because I think... John the Baptist, in his day, hear me out, okay, had a case to be made for the most interesting man in the world for his time. You're like, you're such a so-and-so. That's fine. His birth, let's start with his birth. Yeah, Jesus' birth is wild and miraculous. John the Baptist's birth is wild and miraculous. Like the, the, the angel speaks about his birth in, in, this, in this temple worship service. His dad sort of misses the mark and is silent. Um, you know, uh, he's filled with the Holy Spirit when he, when he meets, uh, when he meets uh, his cousin before they're both born. His parents are these old school spiritual leaders, so they, they kind of represent the generation before. He, he was apparently a very good communicator a good speaker because even the guy who ends up killing him is a little bit bummed because he, he's kind of like to hear him talk. He's like, ah, man, we're going to take his head off, but I, now I guess he won't be talking anymore. I really like to hear him talk. He had taken a Nazarite vow. He didn't drink alcohol. He didn't come in contact with the dead. He had grown, grown his hair out. He was one of those people who follow through on the commitments that they have. 
He wasn't just about talk. He was about, you know, life. And so those people can be intimidating when you see sort of the radiance of someone who is fully embodying their convictions. I think it's one of the the powerful things about the legacy of Dr. King. Um, But he he was calling people back to God. He was saying um, that the time they were living in was significant because God was on the move in a new way. And so we know that he was Jesus' cousin, but at this point, Nobody really knew who Jesus was. And so like John was the guy. And here comes this, this John. He's wearing camel's hair. He's got a leather belt. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And he's like, stay thirsty, my friends. For God. Some of you across the Jordan, when they first entered and conquered the promised land, now they had to go through the river again as a sign they were getting ready for a greater conquest, God's defeat of evil and the establishment of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Back to the Jordan. John was so interesting, uh, so effective in his prophetic calling um, that influential religious leaders were responding. They were coming out themselves, the Pharisees and Sadducees, to be baptized. And John, I love this, he's so confident in his calling, his, his sense of uh, both having received something from God and then embodying that, that intersection place was his life. He's embodying the very thing he's been called to as a prophet, that he doesn't flatter the influencers at all. It could have been like, oh, now the religious leaders are coming. Let's make sort of a coalition here and we can get everyone on board. And in fact, he says, listen, you look like snakes that are running out of the fire that you've been hiding in. John speaks truth to power. He says, your chains can't just be in words. It has to be your heart. It has to be your life. I find it easy to admire John. Maybe you're like, I don't love his wardrobe or his diet, but I find it easy to admire John. And, and also, I think it's, it's interesting that the description of the king he gives us is stirring. It's the kind of thing that human beings want to expect when you talk about a king. Yes, tell me what this person is going to be like. We're going to make the way straight. We're going to prepare the way for the king. What is the king going to be like? And what John says sort of like begins to boil your blood. It begins to stir your imagination. It begins to sharpen your eyes. It begins to heighten your hope. I, I baptize you with water for repentance. You think I'm, I'm, I'm wild? I got a, a camel's hair, you know, a leather belt. I'm eating locusts. I'm baptizing you. You think I'm something. I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. What is that? And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, his Birkenstocks, check. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, check. And fire, okay. He's going to be a judge who's going to remove evil from the world. And then there's a description of a winnowing fork and more fire. Whatever, this is a king. It's intimidating, it's majestic, it's beautiful, it's, it's honoring. And then who comes walking up to John? A relative. 
Who could be less impressive than your younger cousin strolling up after that description? The, the one who I already know, whom, by the way, hasn't taken a Nazarite vow, has been working in construction in our family. I see him at the get-togethers. I know this guy. Here's who comes walking up. As a matter of fact, we find out that the Holy Spirit had to cue John in in the moment to who Jesus was. Because I don't think on his own he would have guessed that it's my younger cousin who works construction, who hasn't taken the Nazarite vow, who's Messiah. You almost, we see it like, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think honestly it's a bit like, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I don't know exactly, but I think he was surprised. Okay, don't. That's not an infallible interpretation I just gave you. This man, Jesus, he doesn't grab the attention of the crowd. He comes and sort of speaks to John, just whispers in his ear. They have a private conversation. He comes to be baptized. And John, who's been instructed by the Holy Spirit, okay, this is the guy, okay, this is surprising. He even has to come and send his followers to check on this later, if you remember. But he says, okay, let me tell you, Jesus, the real king, Messiah thing to do is for you to baptize me. That's the way this should go. But that's not what happens. Jesus is defying expectations. If you look at, you know, Jesus' response to John's objection, he says, no, listen, let it be so for now, for this is proper to fulfill all righteousness, which I basically feel like we don't necessarily fully get. So I want to give you just two other uh, sort of scholars' interpretation of, the, of, that, of that, uh, that, that objection and, and Jesus' response. This is how it's got to be right now, said Jesus. This is the right way for us to complete God's whole saving plan. That's N.T. Wright's translation of that passage. This is the right way for us to complete God's whole saving plan. Eugene Peterson in the message translates it. John objected, I'm the one who needs to be baptized, not you, but Jesus insisted do it. God work putting things right all these centuries is coming together right now in this baptism so John did it I think sometimes we miss in that phrase proper to fulfill all righteousness that this is a culmination of the whole story coming together in this moment this remarkable moment this intersection moment where God's presence and promises and plans are meeting someone who is fully surrendered and committed to obedience and what is unleashed from this moment changes the world, no negotiation. Even if you want nothing to do with Jesus and his claims, this moment and what issues forth from it changes the world historically without argument. We're living in the wake of what happens at the Jordan. Jesus is the firstborn in the way of God in the way of the kingdom coming in the world, on earth as it is in heaven. He's, he's the firstborn. He's going to be the firstborn from among the dead, inviting us into this, the reality of this family, the reality of this kingdom going forward. But in many ways, at least initially, he isn't the king that we would expect. And that is important to note. At least initially, he's not the king we would expect, Right? We're kind of a, li a little bit like John. If you were to think of the king coming, God showing up, what's it going to look like? 
And Jesus shows us a God who is identifying with the human experience. John said he's going to come as a judge. But Jesus shows up first, humbly putting himself in the place of judgment, humbly putting himself in the same place as God's people. He, he is taking their place. He is sharing, Jesus is sharing their penitence and their baptism. He's living their life, the life that they honestly couldn't even live. He's in the middle of embodying it and living it. And then one day he's going to die their death. He's going to die our death. One way to look at what's happening in this story is that he is sharing our baptism so that we can share his baptism. Church, that's the gospel, and you're just nodding at me, okay? I need you to feel this a little bit. Like, he's taking on our baptism so we can share in his baptism. All that comes to Jesus comes to us because he's been willing to take on the fullness of what was meant to come to us. So I want to spend the rest of, of our time uh, seeing what we can see in this, seeing what we can see in this remarkable moment of Jesus' baptism. And, and we're, we're not going to spend even a ton of time on, on that. But um, I do want to say a quick word about the fire in this passage, because this is the kind of thing that would make me so nervous uh, at, at, at many points in my life. Uh, John says the one who comes after him will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Yes, please, I'll take that. And with fire. I don't know. What does that mean? And then just a moment later, fire is used to describe an aspect of the judgment where the chaff of the wheat is burned up with unquenchable fire. This is one of those passages like, we'll skip past. Like, it, it makes us uneasy. In one place, fire is something we're longing for. In another place, fire is, it seems to be putting an end to evil, but we know we're wrapped up in that, that we're wrapped up in, in, in misaligned motivations and brokenness and sin ourselves. And so fire puts away evil. Where does that leave us? And we can't say everything that might be said about this today, but I think we should consider that the image of fire is used often for the unveiled presence of God. And these two pictures of fire, even in this short description, are different reactions to that unveiled presence of God. God is holy. It's interesting. It's one of the things we celebrate in worship songs and also one of the things that keeps us at a distance. Certainly initially from the reality of being able to handle the revelation of God's fullness, the revelation of God's presence. God is holy, we are not, and so we need a covering. We need something that will protect us in the fire. Otherwise, the fire of God is not good news at all. When we tame, this is such a tempting thing in our moment. When we tame God down into a life, go, life coach that we can kind of take or leave, who's, who's a guru, basically, who would never say anything that you don't want to hear, then we don't deal with the fire. And I think for just a minute, we need to deal with the fire. We need to look at it. We, we don't necessarily love to bring up holiness, but the, 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 the fire of God is something the scripture's not shy about bringing up. 
And so even if I would prefer that we just move on to the, to the you, know, you know, baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fire part is there and the fire brings these different res- responses. The first one is that it's something that is consuming what is broken. It's consuming what is evil. It's something that, that, that overwhelms you, that maybe if you're living in sin, it's making you miserable. It's like being consumed. There's no space left for you because all is God. That's kind of how the fire is described. Another is something that ravishes you with joy. That is something like the truest home that you've always longed for. And so we would sing in a worship song, God, I want to burn for you. Let's not turn our brains off when we're singing our praise songs. What on earth am I saying? I want to be consumed. I want to be so transformed by your presence that's what's, what's left of, of me is, 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 the, is the, the, the truest things about your character. And the, the, the mind-blowing reality of that is that being like Jesus or, be, or be, you know, like becoming in worship truly holy like God is holy doesn't make you a carbon copy of someone else who is holy. It makes you the truest version of yourself. God delights to have made you in his image, but not exactly like everyone else. This is one of the other legacies of Dr. King is that we need one another to see the fullness of who God is. Every tribe, tongue, and nation representing different aspects that the others couldn't hold on their own. So something I think about when You know, you consider realities like heaven and hell and the fire of God and what on earth? This question, where do you go in a universe? Where do you go in a universe filled with the unmasked presence of God if you want nothing to do with that God? In my the experience, I want to be baptized by this fire. I'll give you into right one more time. He says, Jesus' own mission was quite different from what people sometimes imagine. The comfort and healing of his kingdom message was balanced by the stern and solemn warning that when God comes back, he demands absolute allegiance. If God is really God, he, he isn't simply the kind, indulgent, easygoing parent we sometimes imagine. And honestly, we, we're okay with that for others. But what if the fire of God's holiness has some things to purify in us, in our church, in our hearts, in our motivations, in our lack of generosity, in our buying into the cultural narrative of what makes a life interesting or meaningful? One of the things, you know, I think Dr. King was so insistent that the kingdom of God have an expression in society that was true, that was holistic, that had integrity. And the American church was at an interesting time, right? There was this uh, white mainline decline (laughs) that was happening. There was this um, evangelical growth that that was happening, but a lot of that evangelical growth was on on the heels of sort of the, um, the, 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 um, you know, like massive, like, Billy Graham type crusades where uh, the, the experience was primarily, not, 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 
not mainly, but like the decision point was about you getting yourself sorted out for heaven instead of hell. And so you, you check the box by praying the prayer and surrendering your life to Jesus. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but the, the, the outworking of discipleship from that mo- movement over the, over the next decades showed us that some people just treated this like a box to check and then take the rest of the American dream because you've got your ticket stamp for heaven and there was no true following Jesus in actual discipleship. And so the American church is still reeling from the reality of this massive amount of evangelical growth that was hollowed out with lack of discipleship because it was about one-time decision. And then when that feels like it's slipped away, get on back to the crusade and rededicate instead of having a life that follows Jesus and Dr. King came, and, and, and the, 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 the black church with its, its prophetic power said, no, no, no. We need to look at what Jesus is actually saying here about our brothers and sisters, that this has to have expression in our real life. It has to have expression in our society. We have to follow the way of Jesus in our actual life. Look at the prophetic promises. So the American church the white American church sort of trapped in its modernism, stamping its ticket for heaven and therefore checking out. Wasn't ready in some sense for the prophetic word he gave us that we need, like understatement of the century, but that we need to live the way of Jesus right now on earth as it is in heaven. And that has to impact how we love and take care of our neighbors We have 11 minutes and 43 seconds, and what we're going to do with that time is look at the remarkable baptism of Jesus, which is what this sermon is about. <laughs> if you didn't know, that's what it's about, okay? So I'm going to give you four, four quick things to see, really quick things to see. The first is that this baptism is, is a turning point. It's significant in a, bu- a bunch of different ways, uh, but one is that Jesus has been living in obscurity basically for 30 years, and that is important to meditate on when you think of the reality that all the prophetic promises, all the story is culminating in this, in this moment. This is proper to fulfill all righteousness. All, you remember the Christmas story and all the angels and Jesus is coming and, and all the big to-do about Christ being born and then nothing until he's 30, except for he showed up at the temple once when he was 12. What does that say about God's plan? What does that say about God's mechanisms? His willingness to wait, his willingness to prepare. He's not on our timeline. As frustrating as that can be, 30 years in obscurity for Messiah. God often uses long times of preparation that might not seem remarkable to us, but they are valuable in God's plan. This turning point is going is to give us a window into one of the realities that shows up over and over again in Jesus' life, and that is his public life is nourished by a deeply resourced private life with the Father. The three years of public ministry, as remarkable as they are, we shouldn't miss the 33 years, 30 of them, 
were about developing the resources of this private life with the Father and in community. So everything that we see Jesus doing is nourished by that private life with the Father and nourished by this unmissable symbolic reality that he is filled with the Spirit. Everything that Jesus does is Holy Spirit ministry. And let me tell you, church, in case you've forgotten, that same Holy Spirit lives in you. So the ministry of Jesus is not just something that happened in history. It is your ministry. That's a turning point. I'll give you another. It's an intersection. It's an intersection like I was talking about at the beginning, a place where where God's plan and promises and presence meets willingness and surrender and obedience. And, And again, it might not look remarkable immediately in the way people expect, but Jesus is showing the upside down way of the kingdom of God. He's He's beginning to show us the way he's going to accomplish redemption. We substitute ourselves for God. That's one way to understand what sin is entirely. We substitute ourselves for God. We go about out of our own resources trying to meet the deep needs of our life and the deep needs of our world without bringing God into the picture. That attempt is sin. That attempt is, is, why we, is one of the reasons we need redemption. We substitute ourselves for God. And Jesus is showing us in this story that he substitutes himself for us. He is sharing our baptism so we can share his. Another critical vision we get from this story is the expression of God in Trinity. <laughs> Our church gets its name from the reality that our God is a three-in-one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is one of the clearest places in the scriptures where you get a depiction of the Trinity demonstrated in the text. Excuse me, a lot of times we're sort of, we're drawing inferences from, you know, what's referenced here and the way this word is translated plural when it's talking about God. But here we got everybody showing up. There's no real question. The Son is showing us God in humanity. The Father is leading the Son. His voice is affirming from heaven. The Spirit is falling and filling Jesus. The triune God is unlike any God we could fathom on our own. It's not a God you would make up. That's why when you look at the rest of religions and mythology and all of it, like, The gods we make up, they look like us. And here you have a God that in his very being is also some kind of, you know, C.S. Lewis said a dance. Like they're moving around and deferring and in relationship. In the very heart of God's actual character is love, not static power. And that means part of the nature, the fabric of reality is relationship because relationship is inherent in the heart of God. Each person of the Trinity, each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is expressed, is showing up in our redemption and the healing of the world. The last thing I want to mention about this baptism is the the potential that it shows us for obedience. That's where we began this morning. What, What could happen if God's intention and heart and love for us met our full surrender, willing obedience, what might grow out of our life? I'm gonna show you what, just for a second, some of what Jesus' obedience in this moment unleashes. 
they're, they're really obvious things right, right off of the text. The first is the Spirit descends on him. The Spirit of God fills our obedience to God's word. Like it, it, it empowers and, and fills and flows out. It is the way we participate in. And so you get a prompting from God by the Holy Spirit. You follow that prompting out in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is present in the ministry of Jesus with that person or in that place. Or This is the way the kingdom literally breaks out into our world. It's so significant that before Jesus does any miracles or calls a single disciple or goes for the temptation or any of it, that he's filled with the Spirit. We need to see Jesus' ministry is a ministry of the Holy Spirit because that way we can't exclude ourselves from what he does. The second thing we see is the Father's affirmation. It's resounding out as Jesus obeys. Now, I, I want to say, I think the Father's affirmation was present before and after this moment of obedience. As a matter of fact, it's really important that he, the Father's affirmation comes before any of Jesus' like outward accomplishments. It's there at the very beginning. But in this moment of obedience, Jesus hears the resounding affirmation of the Father. One of the things that sin sometimes does is it clogs our ears to hearing the affirmation of the Father, that's one of its biggest dangers is that it turns the volume up on guilt and shame and insecurity and exclusion and we stop hearing the voice of the Father's affirmation over our lives. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. One of the reasons we do confession every week is not because we're trying to say we're the worst sinners, even though we might be. It's to say we wanna unclog our ears of this sin so we can hear the affirmation of the Father. And sometimes God knows our ears are so clogged that he just turns the volume up and, and the stuff falls off and we hear any way but one of the regular practices of our life is to confess to turn away to repent of these things that draw us away from life so we can hear again clearly the resounding affirmation of the father not to earn it but to receive it and the last thing is is obedience opens new opportunities such a cliche thing to say i think but the full, resounding, abundant life of God, when you get near someone who's living that way, what you see is this deep commitment to obey what they hear from God. What they hear from the scripture, what they hear from the spirit, they do. It's what gives their faith life. Faith, you know, without action is dead. It's lifeless. It's just named. It's just words. But, but obedience fills it with, with blood, fills it with intention, fills it with love, fills it with purpose, fills it with creativity. It opens new opportunities. All of the opportunities we read in the rest of the gospel flow from this place of surrendered obedience. Jesus goes forward in this reality. The next thing we see is a test of his own heart in the temptation. Then immediately after that, the first public miracle is he takes these massive six purification pots that were used for personal cleansing in the temple and he turns it into wine for a party. Basically like the way you got clean is changing. 
The next thing we see him doing is flipping over tables in the temple. He is going after our hearts. He's going after our structures. He's going after the ways we try to make ourselves clean and change the world and approach him in worship. But before all of that, he comes in full, willing, humble surrender to the Father to be filled with the Spirit at his baptism. So my questions to you as we end are these. Will you trust that Jesus has shared in your baptism so that you can share in his? Can we obey God when the end result is not clear? When the process is taking longer? When 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 We're in year 25 of the 30 years of obscurity. Can we obey? Can we cultivate that private life with the Father? Last two questions is, can you hear the affirmation of the Father this morning? This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter, in whom I am. I am well pleased. We, unified with Christ, hear the affirmation of the Father. And the last question, and and I've had, unprompted, I've had a couple, like, senses of direction from God this week that this is for some of us. (laughs) But do you long for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's one of the ministries of Jesus, is to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And as we move through the rest of this service and we worship and we take communion, if there's anyone who says, I, I want to receive a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit, I would love to pray for you. Not, not just me, but anyone who's gonna be up here at the front uh, throughout the rest of the service would love to pray for you for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. I really felt like there was like a turning point moment for our church even in, in this prayer. And, and then I was like, ah, it's a COVID surge and not I mean, everyone's going to be there. And, blah, blah, blah. And, then, and God was just like, just, just go. Just like put it out there and see what happens. So let's follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit as, as he leads. Uh, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would direct us right now. You would lead us by your Spirit that you would help us to trust that you, Jesus, have shared in our baptism so that we can share in yours. I pray, God, that you would pour out a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire on our church, God, on any who are willing, any who are longing this, this day. In Jesus' name, amen.